Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you, Sister Jennifer, and uh, good afternoon, brethren, and welcome to our guests. Well, as uh, Pastor Murray mentioned, we're going to continue in the book of Hebrews. And uh, for those of you who were not here when we started, we started after the feast last year with the intention to get through the book of Hebrews by Passover. And as we got into the book, we found it a much richer, much thicker, much more dense book than we had anticipated. And so we only made it halfway. We made it to chapter 7. And so what I'd like to do is continue now with chapter 8. But before I do, just a, a, a recap of where we were because it has been a couple of months. And um, for those of you who were not here, uh, maybe just a quick overview of of Hebrews. So the book begins with, uh, we believe, the Apostle Paul stating, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And that sounds very encouraging. In in times past, he spoke in various ways and at various times to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Sounds very encouraging. It actually turns out to be a very dire warning. That it's uh, the apostles speaking to the Hebrews who are in trouble. Their faith is faltering. They're facing very severe persecution by the Romans as well as the Jews. And they're beginning to reconsider their commitment to Christ. And they're beginning to to think about perhaps returning to Judaism. And the letter opens in really a sermon, uh, um, an exhortation uh, of a sermon, where the letter opens saying, look, in times past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And they disobeyed him. And look what happened to them. In these last days, he's speaking to us directly through his son. And if we disobey the son, imagine what's going to happen to us. So this turned out to be a very, very dire warning. And the structure of the message is really comparative. Where he is showing the Hebrews how great something in the Old Covenant is, and if that is great, how much greater Christ is. So chapter 1 begins by showing that God spoke to the prophets through the angels. And and the angels are great, but Christ is greater. And that's uh, chapter 1 and 2 basically make the argument that Christ is greater than the angels. In chapter 3, he makes the argument that Moses was great, but Christ is greater than Moses. In chapter of 3 and chapter 4, he then speaks about the laboring into the, into the getting to that rest, that there, is, there remains a Sabbath day for the people of God, and we must labor to, to get into that rest and not fall through unbelief, as their ancestors did. Chapter 5, he introduces the concept of Christ as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the argument here is Aaron was a great high priest. Christ is greater. Then in chapter 6, a very dire warning, saying it is impossible 
to renew those who fall away. So if you fall away, after having been blessed with the Holy Spirit and, and the, the understanding that we've been given, then it's impossible for God to renew those who fall away. And then in chapter 7, where we were last, he really digs into the argument that Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And, and, and what a high order that is, and that Christ has an indestructible life. Which leads then to the argument that yes, Abraham was great, he is our father, he is the progenitor, but Christ is greater than Abraham, because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and he was blessed by Melchizedek, and the greater blesses the lesser. So the whole argument with the Hebrews is to show them how superior Christ is, and if they turn their back on him, they will be severely punished. It's important for us to remember that this is a closed conversation. It has nothing to do with us. We get to eavesdrop. It is a Hebrew speaking to Hebrews. And as Gentiles, it's really none of our business. And, and the modern Christianity has hijacked the religion of the Hebrews. Because that's what the Greeks did. There is no way the Greeks could understand that they just weren't included. That God says, of all the families of the earth, you only, Hebrews, have I known. I don't know the Greek family. So this is the, this is the conversation now. It's an internal conversation that we're listening to. Let's now continue in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, of the things which we have spoken... So he said, he said a lot of things. Now, of all these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Let me summarize it for you. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, let me just pause right there and, and again just uh, combating this false religion. Christ is a high priest and he's sitting on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. God sits on a throne. And I say that because, again, because of this platonic influence, we can have the concept that God is an infinite essence. And, and God is just this infinite essence that's everywhere. That's not true. God has a body, he sits on a throne, and Christ is on his right hand. If he has a body, he's finite. He is not infinite. He's eternal, but he's not infinite. He's finite. He's here, he's not there. He's God, he's not the devil. He's this, he's not that. He's finite. We have to, the God of Israel is a finite God with a body. And we are made in his image. So we have to knock out this concept that God is an essence. Okay. Uh, Revelation, we won't go there, but Revelation 3, Christ says that he who overcomes, he will grant to sit with him on his throne, even as Christ overcame and is set down with his Father on his throne. These are beings, these are persons. The Father is a person, Christ is a person, they have a body, they sit on a throne. We will have a celestial body we will sit on thrones with them. 
verse 2. So we have such a high priest, he sat on the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary. And that word minister is the Greek word liturgos, and it means a public servant, a functionary in the temple. So it's from the word, we get our English word liturgy. When we talk about the liturgy of a service, uh, this is the same root of this word. And it means public worship. So this is a minister that conducts public worship, ceremonial worship. So he's a high priest that conducts ceremonial worship in the sanctuary. And of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So, so the ancient Israelites pitched a tent, and God dwelt in that tent. But this high priest dwells in the true tent that the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts. So Christ is a high priest, and therefore he is a liturgist. He's a minister that conducts public ceremonial worship. Why? Because every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's, that's what a high priest does. So as our high priest, Christ, in his relationship with the Father, offers gifts and sacrifices. That's what every high priest does. Therefore, it is of necessity, and the English says this man, the actual word is uh, tuton, which doesn't say man, it's one. Uh, it's of necessity that this person has something to offer. So, if he's a high priest, he, of necessity, he must have something to offer. Verse 4. For if you were on earth, he should not be a priest. So this is a high priest in heaven. If he was on earth, it is impossible for him to have been a priest on earth. Because, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So according to the law, one must be a Levite, and they offer gifts. And if he was on earth, we already have a Levitical priesthood. So we wouldn't need him to serve in that capacity. But he's not on earth, he's in heaven. But since he's a high priest, it's, ne it's necessary that he offered gifts and sacrifices. Seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So that's interesting. So that whole Levitical priesthood, that whole methodology, that, that whole uh, function was really a shadow of something real in heaven. So we, you know, the Israelites might have thought that that was the real thing, and the apostle is saying, no, that's a shadow of the real thing. The real thing is in heaven. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, so he's about to set up the tabernacle, and he was warned by God, for see, says he, that's God, that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mountain. And this is interesting because this verse is where men like Philo and um, I've forgotten his name now. Anyway, the, the church fathers when they were saying that um, Plato was a disciple of Moses and, and Plato had this philosophy that there were the forms in heaven and there were the particulars on earth, so that everything on earth 
was a reflection of a, perf- of a perfect thing in heaven. Uh, it, it's this sort of um, scripture that they used to tie Plato and Christianity or, or, or the prophets together, and, and particularly Moses. And what I think happened here is that we know that Greek is a derivation of Hebrew. So Greek comes from Hebrew. No doubt Plato had access to the Hebrew scriptures and saw scriptures like this and used that to develop his philosophy. Uh, But it is true here that there is a perfect tabernacle in heaven and Moses had to build it precisely as God instructed him so that it it was an exact reflection. And even afterward when they built the temple, they followed the exact same model. So, so the whole worship that the Israelites were involved in was an exact pattern of what is real in heaven. And Moses was warned that he did it precisely. But now, verse 6, has he obtained a more excellent ministry. So again, this argument that Christ's ministry is excellent. And here we're going to see that the covenant that Christ brings here is greater than the Old Covenant. That's, that's what we're going to see here. Then we're going to see that the tabernacle is greater, and then we're going to see that the sacrifice is greater. So he's just really driving home to the Hebrews. There's nothing to return to. Turning your back on Christ and going to Judaism, going back to Judaism, there's nothing. Because everything there is, is uh, it just it pales into insignificance compared to what Christ represents. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. So there's a better covenant which was established upon better promises. And again, I'm going to remind you, this is a closed conversation. This is one Hebrew speaking to other Hebrews. And as Gentiles, we're eavesdropping. This has nothing to do with us. And I know that's tough on our egos, we, we believe that the whole world must revolve around us, so we must be here somewhere. We're not. We're excluded. This is between Hebrews. So he's saying to them, this is someone who's obtained a more excellent ministry because he's the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So we have a high priest with a more excellent ministry, a mediator of a better covenant. Now, notice the logic. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, so you want to run back to this covenant, but listen, it's got a problem. Because if it was perfect, there should no place have been sought for the second. You're Hebrews, you know the scriptures, you know that there's a second covenant. Well, if the first covenant was perfect, why would God speak about a second covenant? So, so, so what are you running back to? Verse 8. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. So first of all, we need to note that it's not that the covenant was at fault. Scripture says finding fault with them, with the people. That's why he made a new covenant. But the fact is, there's a new covenant. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Gentiles are excluded. This has nothing to do with us. This is a Hebrew speaking to Hebrews saying, look, you want to return to the old covenant? Well, then why would God speak about a new covenant? 
Remember the scripture says, Behold, the days come when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, says the Lord. So there was a covenant that they broke, and because they broke that covenant, God had no regard for them. God disregarded them because they broke the covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put. So, first thing we want to notice is who is the covenant between? Who are the parties? It's the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Second thing we want to notice what, what is the covenant? Here it is. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. So we have Gentile Christians hijacking Christianity, hijacking the Hebrew religion, basically saying we're New Covenant Christians, we have a covenant with God, and it does away with the law. This is the exact opposite of what the scripture says. The scripture says it's a covenant between God and the Hebrews, and and the difference between this covenant and the one that they broke, well, the one that they broke, I gave them my laws, and they disregarded my laws. So I disregarded them. But this covenant, I'm going to take my laws and I'm going to put it in their heart. They're going to love my law. They're going to want to keep my law. That's the difference. So where do we get this concept that we're New Covenant Christians, we don't need to keep the Sabbath, we don't need to keep the law, we can throw the law away? That's not what the text says. So, New Covenant, I, God, will put my laws into their mind and write them into their hearts, and I will be to them a God, And they, the Hebrews, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, shall be to me a people. Gentiles are excluded. And I'm going to keep harping on this. And they shall not teach, they, the Hebrews, shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. Meaning, there's a time when the Hebrews don't know the Lord. And and you need prophets. And you need teachers to tell them you should know the Lord. But a time is coming when the Hebrews won't need this. You will not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all Hebrews shall know me. Not not all Gentiles. All Hebrews shall know me. From the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. They have broken the covenant. They have broken the law. They are unrighteous. But they are God's people. And God will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Even though he should completely disregard them, this new covenant is going to regard them. It's going to bring them back. And their sins and their iniquities, which were many, they they were just polluted people, they polluted the land, they they had to be ejected from the land. God says their sins and their iniquities, speaking of the Hebrews, will I remember no more. God is going to completely forgive them with this new covenant. In that he says, and this is, this is the logic now, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first old. So, so there is a covenant between God and the Hebrews, but the fact that he says a new covenant means that covenant is obsolete. It's now old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Where are you going? Where, where are you turning? 
If that covenant that you're turning to is decaying, it's vanishing away, there's a new covenant. Stay, stay the course. Regardless of the persecution, stay the course. And hold on to this new covenant. Now, he has been quoting heavily from Jeremiah 31. And we're going to look at Jeremiah 31 to understand what did the Hebrews understand he was quoting. Because, you know, what we do, we read this as Gentile Christians. We have no regard for the Old Testament. Many Gentile Christians completely disregard the Old Testament. And, and even if we do, maybe we'll go into Jeremiah 31 and we'll just look at the same verses that are quoted here. But the Hebrews wouldn't think that way. They would, be, they would understand the whole context of what they're reading. But before we go there, let's go to Genesis 12. So let's get the full context here. Genesis 12, where we begin with the Abrahamic covenant. So that's where it all begins. The, the Hebrews' origin really begins with Abraham. And there was a covenant that was made between God and Abraham. Let's look at that. Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get you out of your country and from your kindred, from your family, from your relatives, and from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you. So Abram at this time is a polytheist. He's just like everybody else in the land. But there's something that God saw in him, that God reached out to him and said, Look, I want you to get up, leave these people, and go to this land. I'm going to tell you about and I will make you a great nation so you Abraham will become a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed this is the Abrahamic covenant that God says to Abraham, the whole world, all the, I, I, I'm, I'm going to bless you and your family, but in your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. No ifs, no ands, no buts. I, God, am going to do this. In another place he says, I swear by myself, because I can swear by no higher, that I'm going to do this. In blessing, I will bless you. There are no conditions. This is an unconditional covenant. And this is the umbrella covenant. This covenant never goes away. This, this covenant cannot become old. So when, when Paul speaks of the old covenant, he's not referring to the Abrahamic covenant. Because the Abrahamic covenant has no conditions. No strings attached. It's the umbrella covenant. Now, what he's referring to is the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. It is how God is actually going to carry out the Abrahamic covenant. So let's go now to Exodus 19, where we can see the Mosaic covenant. Exodus 19 and verse 1. In the third month, when the children of Israel, so these are the children that have come down through the Abrahamic line, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, and this is just a complete miracle. This is the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. 
Israel was nothing. They were in servitude, in slavery, had no power. And yet, this powerful nation of Egypt had no power over them. And they just left and were free. So they came forth out of the land of Egypt. The same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. So the very same day. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. So this is between God and this family. This family of Israel. Say this to them. You have seen what I, God, did to the Egyptians. And this is, this is, nobody goes up against the Egyptians. This is the force of the earth. But you saw what I did to them. And how I bare you on eagles' wings. And brought you unto myself. So Egypt was powerless. And God brought them out to the desert unto himself. Where they could keep the feast. Now therefore, now that you've seen this, now that this has happened. Now therefore... If, and this is the difference, with the Abrahamic covenant, there was no if. With the Mosaic covenant, there's a big if. So this is where I'm going to now carry out my promise to Abraham, and I'm going to do it with you as his descendants, but here's how it's going to work. If you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. So we have this if-then framework. You obey me, you obey the covenant, I'm going to make you a, a people that sits above all other people. And you're going to be a peculiar treasure to me. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. So God promised to Abraham, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And now he says to Israel, you obey my covenant, and I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. What the priests do? Priests mediate between men and God. So you'll be this nation of priests through which the whole world will get to come and have covenant with me. And will have a relationship with me. So as much as I've been saying, this is a Hebrew conversation. We're eavesdropping. This has nothing to do with us. Well... It has everything to do with us. But it's God's covenant with the Hebrews, which we are invited into. And at this stage, at the Mosaic covenant stage, we're not invited. But the Hebrews are going to be made a nation of priests. And as priests, they're going to mediate with the rest of mankind. Because all the earth is God's. And he wants the earth to facilitate, he wants to have a relationship with the earth through the kingdom of Israel. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So this was the agreement. If you do this, then I'll do this. And the people promised and said, yeah, no problem. We'll do that. And that was just as far from the truth as, as it could possibly be. Now, what's interesting, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, 
where you really see the if-then conditions in detail. So this is sort of the overview of the agreement. Deuteronomy, Moses spells it all out for the children of Israel before they go into the Promised Land. It's then interesting, having read Deuteronomy, to read the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and just see how faithful God is to his covenant. Both ways. The door swings both ways. If you do this, then I'll do this. Oh, but if you do that, then I'll do this. And God is very, very... The, the uh, books of Kings and Chronicles show how faithful God is to his word. That he punishes Israel with precision. If you do this, then I'll do this. And he, and he chases them down. like It's like a hunter. Hunting them down to give them exactly what he promised. Because it was a conditional agreement. And God holds his part of the agreement. Okay. With that context, understanding then that the Mosaic Covenant was one application of the Abrahamic Covenant. And it failed because the people failed. So God calls a new covenant to carry out this Abrahamic Covenant. And in calling it new, he's calling the other one old. So this is now obsolete. The Mosaic Covenant is now obsolete because we have a new covenant. But the new covenant is also an application of the Abrahamic covenant, which cannot be broken, because it was unconditional. Jeremiah 31. And we're just going to do a little bit of reading, but we won't, we won't uh, stop much. We'll just get the context. We'll actually pick up the, um, the context in chapter 30, verse 22. Chapter 30, verse 22, where God says, And you shall be my people, speaking to the Hebrews. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. So this is between God and the Hebrews. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. So this is the context. God is going to send forth this whirlwind and it's going to land with pain on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he has done this and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days you shall consider it. So this pain is pain on the Gentiles. It's on the wicked nations that have attacked Israel. Chapter 31 verse 1 At the same time, says the Lord, at the very same time that I'm going to destroy the wicked, at that time will I be the God of all the families of Israel. This is what chapter 31 is about. It's about God being the God of all the families of Israel and destroying the Gentiles. In the latter days, you shall consider it. So this is something that's in the latter days. That God is going to act, and when he acts, he's going to destroy the wicked who have been persecuting Israel, and then he's going to be the God of Israel. At the same time, says the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. So the reason Israel's in the wilderness, the reason Israel is, is being persecuted with the sword is because they broke the covenant. And God is being faithful to his covenant by causing them to be destroyed. But now he's saying, these same people that are being destroyed, they're going to be brought back. They're going to be my people. 
The Lord has appeared, verse 3, The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yes, I have loved you, Israel, with an everlasting love. God's love for Israel is everlasting. Even though they broke the covenant, He still loves them. It's an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. So God knows who Israel is, and with loving kindness He's reaching out and He's drawing them back. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tabrets, and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Unbelievable. So as much as they are depressed, as much as they are being savagely beaten, God is giving them hope, and saying, you will again be restored. You shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. For the Assyrians have destroyed them and scattered them in Syria, they're nothing. And God is saying, you know what? You're going to plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon the mount of Ephraim shall cry, Arise you and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord of our God, the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob. Sing with gladness for Jacob. And shout among the chief of the nations. So Jacob will be the chief of the nations. Publish you, praise you, tell everybody, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the coast of the earth. For they have all been scattered, and God is promising to gather them. And with the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and her that travails with child together, a great company shall return there. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of the waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. God is explaining why he's doing this. They broke my heart. They broke my covenant. I made an agreement with them. I upheld the agreement. And I punished them exactly as I said I would. But he's my firstborn. He's my, I'm a father to him. And I love him with an everlasting love. And I am going to restore him. Yes, he has to be punished. But this is a family relationship. This is my son. I'm going to restore him. Hear the word, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O you nations. So all you Gentile nations, hear the word of the Lord. And declare it in the isles afar off and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him. God has a very, very, very special relationship with the descendants of Israel. In, in fact, what I would say is God's relationship is with Israel. Period. Period. God's relationship is with Israel. And tell all the nations, no matter how great they are, tell them that I am the God of Israel. He that scattered Israel will gather him. And keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. And ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than him. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. And shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord. For wheat and for wine and for oil. And for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden. And they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and make them rejoice from their sorrow. 
and I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. My people. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. This is God faithfully carrying out his side of the agreement. Rachel disobeyed God. The children of Israel disobeyed God. And God did according to the covenant. And there was lamentation and weeping. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping. There's something greater taking place. Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. And they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in your end. There is hope in your end, says the Lord. That your children come again to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. So God is saying, yes, I have heard this. This is what Ephraim is saying. You have chastised me, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for you are the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh, I was ashamed, yes, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Now God answers, Isn't Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Lord. So yes, God had to punish Ephraim. He had to punish Israel. But even while he's punishing Israel, his heart is breaking. And he's saying, this is my child. This is my son. And I will restore him. Set you up. Waymarks. Sorry. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Lord. Set you up waymarks, make you high heaps. Set your heart toward the highway, even the way which you went. Turn again, O virgin of Israel. Turn again to these your cities. How long will you go about, O you backsliding daughter? So, Israel is a backsliding daughter. How long are you going to do this? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. So there's now a new thing. A woman shall come past a man. This is the new thing. So we see right here in the context, Israel is the backsliding daughter. Israel is the woman. This woman is going to come past around a man. The man is Christ. So Israel will come back God will send Yahweh, God will send Kyrios, God will send the Lord, and this woman will come pass around him. She will be faithful. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, As yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah, and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. So they're still going to use this speech. The Lord bless you, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. And they shall dwell in Judah itself, and in all the cities thereof together, husbandmen, and they that go forth with flocks. 
For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked and beheld, and my sleep was sweet unto me. Behold, the days come. So, so we haven't changed context here. We haven't changed subjects. This is all about God's love for Ephraim. God's love for Judah. God's love for this relationship that he has with his family, the people of Israel. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them, so notice this verse 28, it's going to come to pass that the very same way that I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, God is faithful to his covenant. God made it his duty. He made it his principal obligation to destroy Israel according to the covenant. If you do this, then I'll do this. If you do this, then I'll do this. So you start worshipping false gods. You start mixing yourself with the people of the land. You start marrying foreign women. When you do these things, I'm going to curse you. So God is like a hunter going after every single one of them who he could catch and bring fuck up destroy, break down. That's what God was doing to Israel. The same way he was faithful to his covenant doing that, he says this. And it shall come to pass that just as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, and to destroy, and to afflict, in the very same way will I watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. So so God is going to come back to Israel and watch over them with precision to build and to plant. In those days, they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So it looks like there was some sort of saying, where they're just basically saying, it's hopeless. Our fathers made some mistakes, and we're the ones who suffer. And God is saying, they're not going to say that anymore. Verse 30. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. So now it's going to come down to the individual. Every man that eats the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, again, what what have we been talking about for the whole passage? God's love for Israel. We're not talking about Gentiles. We're talking about the special relationship, the special covenant relationship that God has with Israel. So, newsflash, we're not changing the subject. Let's stay in the same subject. This is what the Hebrews would understand when Paul says, you know, the fact that he promised for a new covenant, it means he's calling the other one old. The other one is now obsolete. So they would know this passage. And as Hebrew talking to Hebrews, they would understand exactly what he's talking about. So now we come into the new covenant. Verse 31. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I, God, will make a new covenant with whom? with who we've been talking about, with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, notice which covenant, he's not talking about the Abrahamic covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand. Remember we read that, the very day that they were taken to the desert, that's the very day he made the covenant with them. So the very day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I made a covenant with them. That's the Mosaic covenant. Which my covenant they broke. That's the covenant they broke. Although 
I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So I was a faithful husband, but she broke the covenant. And it's the Mosaic covenant. Instead of that covenant, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So I just, I really want to make sure we're clear about this, brethren. The new covenant excludes Gentiles. This is a, a Hebraic, agree, this is an agreement between God and the Hebrews. And the Hebrews that Paul was speaking to would understand. Yet we're Christians. We've accepted Christ. We're thinking of turning our back on him. And he's saying, where are you going? The old covenant is vanishing away. It's disappearing. It's obsolete. The fact that he speaks about a new covenant means the old covenant was not perfect. There must have been a fault with it for God to speak of a new covenant. I will put my law in their inward parts. So, so they broke it. They broke the covenant. But this time they're not going to break it because I'm going to put my law in their inward parts. So again, I don't know where we get this concept that as New Covenant Christians we can dispense with the law. The New Covenant is all about the law. And write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. It's going to be in their hearts. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In verse um, 37, sorry, verse 36, well, let's just read verse 35. Thus says the Lord, which gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea when the waves are uproar, the Lord of hosts is his name. This is what he says. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, I am completely committed to Israel. They will never depart from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. If you can do that, then I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. So, they've, they've done a lot of evil. And God is saying, you know, tell you what, even though they've done a lot of evil, my love for them is greater. And if you can measure heaven or measure the foundations of the earth, let me know. And if you can do that, then I'll cast them off for all the evil that they've done. So the whole passage is, Israel is a very, very evil people. They are a backsliding people. But God's love is greater. And out of this greater love, he creates a new covenant. That basically disregards all of their evil. Puts his laws in their hearts and in their minds. And makes them want to do the law. Unlike the other covenant, which just gave them the law. But then they still had their human nature. And they broke the covenant. Now God is going to replace that human nature with the Spirit. And this is the context of the conversation that Paul is having with the Hebrews. Who are thinking of turning their back on Christ. They say, where are you going? This is the new covenant. Christ is the mediator 
of the new covenant, which is between God and the Hebrews. Now, look at Galatians 3. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is the application of the Abrahamic covenant. It's how the Abrahamic covenant gets carried out. That, that this people are to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests to teach the whole world so that all the families of the earth can be blessed in the seed of Abraham. They broke that covenant. So now, we're looking at the new covenant. And in the new covenant, again, it's, the, it's how the Abrahamic covenant gets carried out. But notice this in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's really all he did. That's how the relationship started. God told him to do something. He believed God. He did it. Acted out of faith. And that was counted to him for righteousness. So he had no works except belief. And that's where it all started. In the same way, know you therefore that they which are of faith, and now we're speaking about Gentiles, as long as we are of faith, the same, the same Gentiles, are the children of Abraham. So the covenant with Abraham is, is unconditional. There's nothing that can be done to break it. God will carry it out. He is carrying it out. Now the difference is, Gentiles can be counted as children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, how? Through faith. Preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So God knew that this is how, in fact, he, he, in a sense, he knew that Israel would not carry out the first covenant. So all nations will be blessed in the new covenant. So the scripture uh, would justify the heathen, foreseeing the ju- would justify the heathen through faith, preach the gospel to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So this is how we now become the children of Abraham. Now go to Romans 11. We saw in Jeremiah 31 how deep God's love is for Ephraim, for Israel. Ephraim is just another name for Israel. We saw just how deeply committed God is, how deep his love is for Israel. Now, we have a situation where Gentiles are children of Abraham. Through faith, they are coming into the covenant. And the, the physical, genetic descendants of Abraham have rejected the faith. They are not accepting Christ. So this is a bit of a crisis here. We've got Gentiles accepting the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, and then Israelites, although they accept the Abrahamic covenant, are rejecting the new covenant. They're not coming into the new covenant. Romans 11 addresses this. I say then, have they, the Israelites, in this case specifically the Jews, stumbled that they should fall? So yes, they stumbled, but have they stumbled so that they should fall? I think we know the answer from Jeremiah 31. That even though they stumble, even though they're evil, God's love is so deep 
that he won't let them fall. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. God prevent this. But rather, through their fall or through their stumbling, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. So God is working something out here where he's blinded the Jews, let the Gentiles come in, and then he's going to use that to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Now, the logic is this. If the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentile, how much more their fullness? And we know their fullness is coming. How do we know their fullness is coming? God promised it in Jeremiah 31. God promised he will gather Israel. In the latter days, he'll consider it. So a time is coming when God will, according to his faithful promise, gather Israel. When that happens, if their stumbling is riches unto the Gentiles, what will their gathering be? Imagine what's going to happen then. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. So Paul is really desiring to save some of the Jews. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. So Paul clearly understands this blindness that has happened to the Jews is temporary. God's love will ensure that their eyes are opened. Just for now, they are closed. But when their eyes are opened, what a blessing that's going to be. If, if their falling is a blessing, what will their rising be? Because God loves Israel. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And, and Israel is the first fruit. God says of Ephraim, he is my firstborn. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, so he's saying that the physical Israelites are holy. But if they are broken off, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, are grafted in among them, and with them partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree, so we are now children of Abraham, we have now come into the covenant, we get to partake of the blessings of this covenant, then if we're doing this, recognizing the root, the root is Israel, the root is Ephraim, but we're benefiting, then boast not against the branches. I'm speaking specifically of the branches that have been broken off. So, so let's not boast against the branches, but if you boast, you bear not the roots, but the root you. So we can't come in and just make up our own religion. This is a covenant between God and the Hebrews. And what God has done is through faith, he has grafted us in. So we are now as much children of Abraham as the physical children of Abraham. But that doesn't give us the right to take over the religion, make up our own religion, make up new rules, completely disregard the root, 
We don't bear the root. The root bears us. So it's understanding this that is going to help us be faithful to the Word and not get seduced by false religion. True religion is rooted in the Hebraic covenant. True religion is rooted in the covenant with Abraham. True religion is rooted in the covenant with Israel. And God is going to carry this out. So boast not against the branches. But if you boast, think about this, you do not bear the root, but the root you. You will then say, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. I'm more important than the branches. They're broken off, I'm the one that's in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. So faith is believing God's word. So if you're going to disregard God's word, be careful. God's word says he loves Ephraim. He will gather Ephraim. He will be faithful to Ephraim. For the time being, they've been broken off. We've been grafted in. Now, we are enjoying the benefit of the new covenant, but we stand by faith. Faith means believing God's word. If we disregard the root, the Hebraic root, we're not standing by faith. We're in trouble. So we have to have this faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not you. So if we completely disregard the Hebraic root, the Hebraic covenants, take heed. God, God will not tolerate this. He will not spare us. Behold, therefore, the goodness as well as the severity of God on them which fell. Severity. He was carrying out his covenant. So there's severity. But toward you, goodness. If, if we see this word again, no free ride. It's, it's not, you know, carte blanche. There's a condition. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also shall be cut off. You also shall be cut off. And it's very, very clear. There's no one saved, always saved here. There's a condition. And they also, if they abide not, still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And we saw that in Jeremiah 31. The same way God hunted them down to destroy them, he says, I'll hunt them down to build them up. They also, if they abide not still in unbelief, so if they do repent, they shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And even though we're in the book of Romans, you can hear the same kind of logic and reasoning. It's the kind of an echo of Hebrews. If this is true, how much more shall this be true? So if God is able to graft in wild branches, how much more can he take the natural branches which have broken off and graft them back into the natural tree? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. So Paul is very concerned that the Gentile Christians become arrogant and begin to make up their own religion. And he's saying, don't do this. Be humble. This is not about you. This is about God and Israel. 
and you've been invited in. So, so don't hijack the religion. Be humble. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. It's a mystery. And if you're ignorant of it, then you'll become arrogant. Here's the mystery. Blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So there's some sort of a mystery at work here where God has blinded Israel and now gathering the Gentiles. Which, by the way, many Israelites are mixed into the Gentiles. So, so this might be part of the mystery that God is still gathering Israel even though he's gathering the Gentiles because the northern tribes were scattered by the Assyrians. They're everywhere now. So we have Judah, but we don't know where the, the lost tribes are. But So as God is gathering the Gentiles, he's also gathering the lost tribes. And while he's doing this, he's keeping the Jews blind until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so then, all Israel shall be saved. And that's sort of the logic that I see here. So he's keeping the Jews blind. All of the Gentiles are being gathered in. When they're all gathered in, then the Jews will come in. And then he says, then all Israel will be saved. All the tribes will be saved. Because many, the, the lost tribes have been mixed into the Gentiles. So we're going to bring all the Gentiles in, gather the lost tribes, then bring Judah back in, and then the focus is saving Israel. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So this is the new covenant. It has everything to do with Hebrews. And, and the, the Hebrew apostle is speaking to the Hebrew saints and saying, look, Christ is a high priest that is better than Aaron, and he's the mediator of a better covenant. And, and here's the covenant. Now, we see through Romans and Galatians that we're invited to be to participate in the covenant. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. And we'll just, uh, we'll just wrap up here. In the interest of time, I'll stop. We'll we'll pick up chapter 9 the next time we do Hebrews. So we'll stop here, brethren. What I did want to emphasize in chapter 8 is, again, that Paul is building this argument of how superior Christ is. And this part of the argument is the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. But for us as Gentiles, the lesson for us is the covenant is between God and Israel. God's love is for Israel. God communicates with man through the Israelite covenant. And we are blessed to be grafted in to this covenant. So let us be very, very careful about our doctrine and not get swept away with, with Greek make-belief. Let's, let's stick to the truth. And that is the Hebraic covenant. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.com.